I will grab your Bibles and open them up to Mark chapter 4. Uh, We're continuing in the gospel of Mark today, uh, the story of the Messiah. And as we go through the gospel of Mark, you'll see the story of Jesus is told in a number of different ways. Uh, At times, the text simply tells us what Jesus did. Sometimes it shows us the interaction between Jesus and sort of the Pharisees or the disciples. But the gospel also includes sections where Jesus just taught. Um, And we're entering into one of those sections today. And so over the next two weeks, we'll see Jesus monologuing or delivering a crafted message for the people to hear and receive. Now, the strange thing about the messages that we're going to look at over the next two weeks um, is that Jesus does not deliver this truth in such a way that makes it easy to hear and receive. Instead, he speaks in parables. Now, Many of you have read the parables. Many of you love the parables, I hope. I love the parables. Uh, With our love of story and allegory, the parables are are, are fun to read and listen to. But the parables are a very interesting choice for how to get a message across. Uh, Because in many ways, they create as many questions as they do answers. And so in order for us to sort of make sense of of the parables and why Jesus speaks in parables, um, we are going to to explore a little bit today uh, why he uses these. And we're going to do that particularly because that's what Jesus uses the first parable to do, to actually explain the purpose of the parables in a parable, um, the parable of the sower. But it is odd that Jesus speaks in sort of such a cryptic way. Um, At other times in his ministry, he is very direct, very straightforward. Um, But with the parables, the message that is being taught is shrouded in story. And I'm not the first person to notice that. Actually, in our text today, the disciples having heard him teach directly before, now listen to the parable and kind of come to him and go, what's the deal? Right? So right after he gives them the parable of the sower, they come to him confused. And so we're actually going to start today in verse 10 of chapter 4. It says this. It says, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, that is difficult. Um, There's really no way to sugarcoat um, that or pretend like what Jesus is saying there is easy to understand or, honestly, when understood, easy to accept. But this is Jesus' answer, so we're going to dig into this. What does he mean when he says this? So let's break it down. The first thing that Jesus says is, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So the first thing that Jesus does in describing the purpose of the parables is to make it clear who is in control when it comes to the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't talk about what we need to do in order to learn um, or, or some effort that we need to make so that we can prepare ourselves. He simply states that the secrets of God are either given or not given. In other words, people are not first sort of convinced of the gospel. No, the gospel truth is given by the intervention of the Holy Spirit. No one comes to the secrets of the kingdom on his own accord. Those who come to the gospel come through the work of the Spirit. Now we see Paul kind of 
building on this a little bit, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he describes the distinction between those who, to whom it has been given and those who it has not. And he says this, this is 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 10. It says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so the idea here is that the Spirit must be present first for us to be able to understand the things of God. So from what Jesus says in verse 11, the first purpose of the parables is what I would call distinction. That is, Jesus uses the parables to show a difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom that is from heaven. He who has been given the gift of hearing will hear, and he who has not will not understand. And he reiterates this in verse 12 when he says, They may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, in that, Jesus is quoting from the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah, a chapter where God sends Isaiah out to tell the people about their destruction, and he basically says, go out and warn them, they will not hear you. Um, I'm sending you with a message, it is a true message, if the people would hear the message in turn, they would be saved, but they will not. Um, God makes it very clear that this is what is going to happen. Um, that, that section of scripture is actually quoted six times in the New Testament, So we know that this is something that God wants to make very clear to us. That a person with a hard heart will not perceive or understand the good news of God. Now, if that were the whole reason for the parables, then I would really have nothing to do but get up here, read them, and sit down. Um, That would be the end, and I would be like, good luck. Um, But there is a second reason that Jesus gives us the parables. There is something else that he is doing here. Um, The parables also exist to give us a clear picture of our God. That is, when God gives us the gift of illumination, the Spirit comes in and replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, but we don't automatically at that point have a full picture of the kingdom of God. I've always said, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome if all of a sudden you became a Christian, you're like, I now have the Bible memorized, I understand it all. But that's not what happens. We still have a long way to go. And so our heart has been opened up to be able to understand, but it does not at that moment have the fullness of God. And so the mysteries of God are continually revealed to us, and the parables act as a way for God to sort of speak his truth into our lives to deepen our faith. So the second purpose of the parables is revelation. God uses these stories to reveal aspects of who he is that we would never experience firsthand. That is to say, he uses the parables to explain things to us that are bigger than us. He confronts us with our sin, sin that it stays hidden from us otherwise. He uses the parables to show the coming judgment. He gives us parables to sort of make clear the nature of our salvation. The parables that we're going to look at next week are parables of the kingdom, which show us the value and characters of the kingdom of God. So the parables divide between those who hear and who do not hear, 
but they also reveal to those who can hear the depths of God's eternal plan and holiness. Again, concepts that we cannot just understand in a straightforward way. The parables communicate divine ideas to us in this digestible form. Now with that, let's now get into the parable of the sower. So going back to verse 1 of Mark chapter 4, knowing what God is doing through parables, this is what he says. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat it, in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus lays out the parable for us here. Um, and lucky for us, he actually translates this entire parable for us in verses 13 through 20. Which is to say, unlike a lot of the other parables where he basically teaches it and then moves on to the next one, Jesus takes the time here to explain what all of this means. Um, and he does that because he wants to, to sort of teach his disciples and also us what it means for us to approach these parables. In verse 13, he sort of uh, describes the reason for this. Um, as they come to him, he says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the other parables? Uh, really, if you don't understand what I'm saying here, you're not going to understand the rest of what I have to say. Um, so he's going to help them out. He's outlining the issue here, which we've already acknowledged, that parables take work even for those who have been given the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Um, but Jesus is a loving and gracious Savior. He doesn't just leave them there and go like, you guys should be doing better. Um, he says, let me help you through this. Let me show you what this looks like, um, how to do this well. And so he begins by sort of identifying the key to the whole thing. He says, you have to understand this to understand the rest. In verse 14, he says, the sower sows the word. So that's what he's talking about. Um, now, the story here has two main components. We have the seed and the soil. The seed, Jesus says, is the gospel, is the word, and the soil is the human heart. And so this parable is meant to identify the responses of the human heart to the gospel message. How do people in the world react to the word of God at the heart level? And Jesus describes the human response to the call of the gospel uh, by using four soils. The first soil, he says, is a path, and it represents the person who has a hard heart. Jesus describes this to us in verse 15. He says, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, and when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, we all have an idea, I think, of a person with a hard heart, a person who is hostile to Christianity. Uh, it might be the person that you work with who makes fun of, of God at whatever opportunity they get. It might be that family member who likes to jab you at every family dinner about the ignorance of Christianity. Um, who knows? But there are those people that we interact with who obviously um, do not love God and make it very clear to us all the time. Now, they're not necessarily bad people from an earthly sense. 
Um, they're just people who have absolutely no desire to submit to God. They would rather be their own God than follow God. This is a man in his natural sinful state. And when Jesus describes this idea of Satan snatching away the seed, it means that that, that seed never even has a second to germinate. It's being pushed back against so quickly that the word of God can't even begin to settle in. I don't know if you've ever tried to share the gospel with someone like this, but I always describe it as bouncing a ping pong ball off of the wall. It just kind of keeps coming back to you. You're like, wow, this is, this is really working well. Um, it just feels like you can't get anywhere because, because there's just so much dismissal. Second soil. Second soil is rocky ground. It represents the person with a shallow heart. The person with a shallow heart is described by Jesus in verse 16. It says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have, but they have no root in themselves, for they endure for a while. But then when tribulation or persecutions arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I would say anyone who has been at church for any amount of time knows this person. Uh, they tend to come into church with a roar. Uh, upon conversion, they sign up for every Bible study and every service opportunity, and they are there for everything. Um, depending on what church background you come from, you might say that that person is on fire, uh, but the thing about fire is it tends to burn out as quickly as it is lit. And the reason for that burnout, those reasons are vast, uh, but it always comes back, Jesus says, to a lack of root. Now, the shallow-hearted person appears to be a Christian to everyone they interact with. As a matter of fact, I would say in many cases, they look more Christian than the actual Christians. Um, because they are doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. But they're not built on a foundation that lasts. They're not building on the gospel. And after all of their work and all of their efforts, all of their Bible studies, they fall away in the same way as the hard-hearted person. Third soil. Third soil is entrenched in thorns. This is what we call the strangled heart. The description that Jesus gives us is in verse 18. It says, There are ones that were sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So I'd say much like the shallow heart, the strangled heart loses its focus on the gospel. But in the case of of, of the strangled heart, it becomes sort of blurred by the lure of worldly pleasure. There is an unwillingness to recognize the sin of the world um, that surrounds them. And these are people who think they can sort of have the gospel plus. They can have their life as it always has been and just sort of add Jesus to it, right? Um, they want to hold on to their old self without, while also trying to put on the new. And what the Bible tells us is this isn't possible. The heart cannot serve two masters. You can't carry on in two directions, Now, as the parable suggests here, God may allow the plant to to seemingly grow, but thorns choke it out eventually. All right, the final soil, the fourth soil, is the good soil. It represents the soft heart. Jesus characterizes the soft heart this way. He says, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So the the good soil not only hears the word, but accepts it. 
It's a heart that understands the, the word, and then, and then it says it will bear fruit. Thus, we know what the good soil is by the fruit that it bears. And Jesus is clear that the amount of sort of um, good that is, is sown from it will differ, but the presence of the Spirit in the heart of a person will produce results. Which is to say, if the Holy Spirit has been put into the heart of someone, there will be a response. Something will happen. So we have four soils. We have four hearts. We have been given a picture of, of what a heart that has the Spirit looks like in, 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 in comparison with three that do not. We have seen one that has the ears to hear and three that hear but do not understand. And so the question is, what is the difference between the last one from the first three? Right? What is it about the good soil that makes it good? And I would say that the answer is nothing. The fourth soil is dirt. Dirt does not have the ability to pick up the rocks. Dirt does not have the strength to remove the weeds. Dirt cannot till itself and prepare itself for the seed to be sown. Someone else has to act upon it. Side note, if there was self-preparing dirt, I would pay a lot of money for it because my gardening time would be cut down significantly. But what we see in the parable is God, who is both the sustainer of the dirt and the, the creator of it, he must act in order for the gospel to grow. Who are we then as Christians? We are dirt that has been tilled by God. God has chosen to prepare us to be the good soil. He has made our hearts soft to plant in us the word of truth. So what is difference, the difference between who we are and who the other three are in this parable? The difference is God. The difference between the person who hears and understands the word of God and the person who rejects God is God choosing to work the soil, to take out our dead and dying hearts and to put in a new one. The great thing about this is God does not wait for us to prepare the soil. He does not wait for people to be good and then say, okay, now you can be part of my family. He knows that we are people dead to sin and that we cannot do anything to make ourselves ready for the seed of the gospel. And so in his love, he does the work that we could never do. Rescuing us from the punishment that we deserve. Giving us ears to hear and eyes to see so that when we hear the word, we respond. Now, all of this leads to a question. It should. Hopefully you're thinking the question. I'll give it to you. The question is, what then is the point of evangelism? Right? If God's doing this work, what is the point of us sharing the gospel? And I find that many people not being able to reconcile the idea of God's absolute sovereignty overall, including our hearts, and his command to proclaim the gospel, tend to choose one side or the other, right? They tend to either believe that um, salvation is a matter of how cleverly you can package the gospel, um, and so they put all their time into how do we become the best possible at sharing what we have, or they don't evangelize at all, setting up private clubs of those who already hear the word of God. And what both of these do is remove part of what God has commanded. Uh, but I'm not in the business of making God smaller. Um, I don't think any pastor should be. We must hold these two truths that God has given us together. 
We must acknowledge that God has given us the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations while not letting go of the fact that it is His work in the heart that allows for conversion. Now, all of this leads us to really the final piece of this parable, the one part we haven't talked about yet, and that's the sower. The sower is the person who, equipped with the Word of God, takes seriously the call to sow the seeds of the gospel. Jesus said, the sower sows the Word. The sower is the person who loves God enough to proclaim his goodness and loves his neighbor enough to give him the truth that will set him free. What the Bible tells us is that we are all supposed to be sowers. Not out of fear that God won't love us if we don't, not out of some sort of weird idea that God will love us more if we do. No, we should evangelize out of the love that has already been shown to us in the life of Jesus Christ. He who gave up his throne in heaven to live among the dirt of this world. He who gave his life to receive the punishment that you and I deserved. Because we have a God who is not afraid to get his hands dirty. And so this parable reveals to us the nature of conversion that should affect the way that we evangelize. The recognition of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility within the realm of evangelism will make how we share the gospel different. It will take on some very unique, I think, characteristics. First, it means that we will evangelize boldly. As already stated, you cannot see the glory of God, a God who creates, who gives us a path to righteousness in Jesus, and then after that sort of just go, yeah, well. No, we talk about the things we love. We share the things that we think are important. People are vocal about that which they are passionate about, whether this be their kids or their sports teams or their diet or their jobs or their hobbies or whatever. We talk about what we think matters. And yet too often, many of us are almost apologetic about bringing Jesus into the conversation. We keep our God, the center of our lives, on the back burner so that we don't unnecessarily offend anybody. But the most offensive thing that we can do as Christians is to not share what we have. The worst thing that we can do is say, we know the path to be reconciled to God, but you know what? I'm going to keep it to myself. And so when I say we evangelize boldly here, what I don't mean is that we kind of puff out our chests and have some sort of uh, weird, I don't know, whatever that would be, weird. What I mean is that we share our faith in places where proclaiming him is not our natural inclination. We push past all of those reasons that we have in the back of our minds not to. Now, I've often heard, and I will be honest, I have used the excuse that I'm just waiting for the right time, which sounds awesome unless you actually read what Jesus says here. Because the parable of the sower tells us that it's not actually our job to go and find the good soil. The sower in the story does not find the good soil and only sow there. The sower scatters the seed. The sower goes out and shares the word because he doesn't know where that soil is. The seed is the same. And you throw it out. He does not spend time making sure the best seeds reach the most prominent soil. He does not ask if that soil dies today, where would it go? He simply shares it. And he keeps sharing it. Some of it will land on good soil and lives will be changed. 
One of my favorite theological quotes on this whole topic of sort of God's sovereignty and evangelism comes from a pastor named Charles Spurgeon. Somebody challenged him basically to say, like, if you believe that God is working on the hearts of specific people, why would you share with everybody? And this is what he said. He said, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting up shirts. But since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will, and then whatsoever believes, I know that he is one of the elect. In other words, our job is not to wait for the perfect time. Our, our job is not to sort of identify who's almost there. Our job is to proclaim the gospel to all and allow God to use this for his glory. This brings us to the second characteristic of what our evangelism should look like, and that's that God's sovereignty will cause us, cause us to evangelize humbly. Now, humility might seem like the opposite of boldness, but it's not. Uh, they go hand in hand. I actually love the description of this that uh, comes from a book called The Beautiful Fight by Gary Thomas. He says, true biblical humility breeds confidence. Many people consider humility a sign of insecurity, but when we accept the Bible's reality that God is already acting, already moving, already directing the affairs of this world, we can rest in His capability, confident that He has made allowances for our own weaknesses, sin, limitations, and lack of gifting. Too often we think about evangelism as our work, but to recognize God's Spirit um, at work, in the hearts of other people, really takes away the burden of evangelism. I think many people avoid talking about the gospel because they're afraid they're going to present it poorly. They're afraid they're going to make a mistake. They're afraid someone's going to ask a question that they don't have the answer to. I know these are all of the excuses that I made in my own mind. But notice how many times I said I in the previous sentences. What God wants to make clear is that evangelism is ultimately not about us. It's about Him. He does the work. We just show up. The soil has been prepared. Our whole part is to just throw the message out there. And then He controls what happens from there. Which is why we then, this is the third thing, evangelize patiently. In the parable of the sower, three quarters of the seeds do not produce fruit. Now, I'm not sure that Jesus was actually trying to be mathematically accurate in the parable. I don't think he's like, 75% of the time, um, I would actually say from my own experience, it, the, the numbers are even a little more difficult than that. I think it's fair to say that if you are bold and humble in your approach to evangelism, you will see more people fail to grow to mature manhood than to actually receive the gospel and, um, and produce fruit. And even those who may eventually come to live out a godly life may not do it in your time frame, right? Depending on God's sovereignty means we don't sort of make this about our way of seeing things. We don't try to overly control it. See, if man is in control of salvation, then you can simply give someone a few steps to walk through, a prayer to repeat, disciplines to master, and say, do this, do this, do this, and you're good. You've, you've proven to God that you're in. If that person then fails to follow Jesus, it's his fault for not trying hard enough. We give him his chance. If he takes it, good. If he doesn't, we never have to think about that person again. But if God is in control, the whole thing changes. Because we never know how God is going to till or weed or make things happen. 
God may use something that you say today to impact someone 20 years down the road. And I've had those sorts of things happen. Where people come back to you like, you remember when you said? And you're like, no. <laughs> um, but I guess I said it because you remember. God sometimes uses something you've said a hundred times. The hundred and first time. We don't know. And so this makes it a lot harder for us to simply give up on people. And I'll say it's easy for me to give up on people. I've done it a lot. A lot of times in my life I've kind of said, that person without hope. I've written people off as not worth my time because they're just not moving in the right direction. And more than once God has used people to show me his true power. He has taken people that I was like, I thought they were gone. And God has rebuked me for my short-sightedness and my lack of faith in him. But what this does is it, it builds in you a great hope. Because what it means is, is, is man, there's, the possibility is everywhere. God is everywhere. Um, there's never any place that we go, well, that person or that place, not going to fly. And that makes us, again, willing to step into places we otherwise wouldn't. Last characteristic, in all of this we evangelize prayerfully. If God truly is in control, then we must appeal to him for changed hearts. And we pray to God not only to ask him uh, or tell him what we want him to do, but we pray to God because we recognize our own inability to bring about conversion. Prayer is the absolute act of submission where we cry out to God in weakness because we know he is strong. He is able to do what we cannot Prayer is acknowledgement of our dependence. Because when evangelism becomes just about what we say, we're only doing half the job. I've always loved how J.I. Packer puts this in his, his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says, there are two sides to the evangelistic commission. It's a commission not only to preach, but also to pray. Not only to talk to men about God, but also to talk to God about men. So I don't know where you are today. Um, I'm not sure if you stand where I did for many years, firmly grasping God's sovereignty, so secure in God's control of salvation that I was pretty apathetic about being an ambassador for Christ, sitting and thinking that someone else smarter, louder, more powerful will do God's work, just assuming someone else should sow the seed, not actually trusting God's sovereignty. Or maybe you're a champion of man's responsibility, boldly proclaiming the gospel, doing it under your own power and basically looking at people and going, you failed, you didn't take the right steps, you didn't take your chance when you had it. My prayer is that we become a church filled with people who hold the truth of Scripture in both hands, relying fully on God's power. And as we do, we need to remember that He is with us every step of the way. And that's why every week when we get together, we come to the table We come to communion, to the promise that God is with us, giving power to our words and actions, making the little bit that we do effective. So as you come to the table today, come asking Jesus to open your eyes to all the opportunities to share the word, all the parts of your life and the people in your life that are already there. And also come asking him to give you the confidence to open your mouth when those opportunities come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for 
uh, not only inviting us into your family, but inviting us into your plan, uh, for making us part of the way in which you are redeeming your world and bringing people into your family. I pray that we would get past just our own little part and our own little our own little kingdom, God, and that you would help us to see the kingdom of heaven and how broad your family and your mission really is. Help us to see all the lost as people who need you, need something that we already have. And give us the confidence and give us the patience and give us the humility to share this truth that has been so kindly given to us. We can't do this without you. So we pray that you would till the soil before us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.